Welcome to Tea for Two, the podcast for women in golf and the men who support them. With your host, Karen Harding. Welcome. Our guest today is one of golf's most accomplished administrators. Karen Lunn started playing professional golf in the mid-1980s. And while successfully competing on both the Ladies European Tour and the LPGA Tour, amassing 16 professional wins including the 1993 Women's British Open, she developed an interest in governance and what happens behind the scenes in staging tournaments. She has since gone on to pursue that area in golf to a very high level. From a voice on the LET Players' Council to Chairman of the LET Board, and now to Chief Executive Officer of WPGA Tour Australasia, Karen is one of the most important thought leaders in professional golf. When she speaks, it's worth listening. Fresh off the first concurrent running of the Men's and Women's Australian Open Championships, Karen reflects on that week, which included celebrating the 50th anniversary of WPGA, and on a range of matters pertaining to women's professional golf in particular, but also to women entering the game. We are very fortunate to have this opportunity to hear from her today. Karen, hello. Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And you? Thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. Great to be here with you. Karen, in your wonderful life in golf, what was the starting point for you? Where did it all begin? Yeah, it started out at Cowra Golf Club in central west New South Wales. Um, golf was a school sport, so both my mum and dad played, but, you know, very poorly. They were just social golfers, and we always had golf clubs at home. So I just thought, yeah, no, that could be a good fun thing to try. So, uh, yeah, gave it a go and uh, was lucky to have a bit of success early on and kept improving, and, yeah, just it went from there. You had a very strong amateur career, a particularly brilliant 1984, and then turned pro the following year in 1985. Was that an easy decision for you after that brilliant year in 1984? Well, I won't say it was an easy decision, but it was an obvious decision, I think, for me. Um, I was only quite young, but I was winning a lot of events and playing really well. Even though I was working at the time, I was, you know, juggling working and playing golf, but I was doing really well in the events I played in. But yeah, I just wasn't given the opportunities. There was a Commonwealth team picked at the end of 1984, and I didn't get in that. And yet I felt that my performances certainly meant that I should have been picked in it. And it wasn't. And and I soon became, I guess, aware that, look, I'm not going to put my fate in someone else's hands. This is my hopefully career. So I just went for it and turned pro and went over to Europe that that first year in 1985. In your playing career, you played on both the LET and LPGA tours, mostly on the LET, as well as the still young ALPG tour. What did you find to be the difference between the two major tours? And did you have a preference for playing in Europe? Yeah, I did. I always enjoyed being in Europe. I found the culture and the history really interesting. And it was, I just found America quite boring when I went over there. But I I very much enjoyed my time on the tour. But I really was not enamored with America as a country. And most of the tour that back then was in the United States, very few events were held outside of the US. And we were just going from sort of one small country town in America to another one. And, you know, they were lovely events and the people got behind them. But I didn't enjoy the experience as much as I did in Europe, but, you know, the the LPGA Tour was great. And when I first went over there, I think it was the end of 93, you know, a lot of the best European players were going over there, the Swedes and the Brits, and it was a good time to go over there. But I I won't say I loved it. 
So I definitely preferred being in Europe. And, and by the time that I was playing there, I was sort of involved in some governance stuff with the LET players' councils and whatnot. So I, you know, I felt it was important to support the tour that had given me a start as well. So I didn't want to just abandon the Ladies' European Tour when it had been so good to me. Now, here's a trivia question for you. Which golf tournament did Karen Lunn win while playing through a snowstorm? Yeah, that was in Sweden in the Bolanga Ladies Open in 1986. That was my first win and we had a snowstorm that basically ruined any chance of playing on the final day. So it was quite fun. I remember I beat Lotta Neumann, who was then same age as me, went on to have an amazing career US Open champion. So that was my first win. So yeah, very good memories of that. It was a shame that it was um, the last round was cancelled, but I was lucky enough to be at the top of the leaderboard. So uh, yeah, very happy to have won that one. Now, in 1992, you almost gave up golf. How close did you come to doing that? Oh, I I mean, you threaten this many times in your career. You know, I've had enough. I'm just not going to put up with this anymore. And I wasn't playing well at all. I was just at a bit of a crossroads and just felt that, I guess, in the back of my mind, I always thought I might come back to studying or doing something else. And it was just at a time where, obviously, if you're not playing well, you're not enjoying your golf. So, yeah, just felt that oh, you know, if I keep playing like this, I'm not going to keep doing it. I'm not just going to be there to make the numbers up. I really want to play well. And yeah, I changed my coach at the um, the end of 91, I think. And I started working with a guy called Lawrence Farmer, who went on to coach quite a few of the girls on the tour. Um, he was a great guy and still to this day, a very good friend of mine. And yeah, worked with Lawrence and he sort of got my confidence back and yeah, played really, really well, obviously, then 1993. And then following that, I had a few injuries. But uh, yeah, I I don't know how close I was, to be honest with you. I mean, I thought I was close, but, you know, I just, I I definitely believed in myself and wanted to give it another go. Well, you wouldn't be the first golfer who has threatened to give the game up only to have that pressure released on themselves and then find some form. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it is, it's, it's a hard way to earn a living, as you well know. You know, you're away from your family and your friends and your support network all year. And, and back in those days, you know, we didn't have mobile phones. My mum would write me letters, I'd write her letters. So you didn't have that. You couldn't jump on a Zoom call like this and, and chat to your family or your, your coach and your friends. So it was a very lonely life back then. It was tough. You had to be very resilient. And, you know, just getting around was very different to how it was then. So, uh, but, you know, I loved it. And I, and I think that deep down I was determined and knew I had more good golf in me but uh like I said it's it's sometimes you're just like oh well I'm just going to give up and that like you said that sort of takes the pressure off and you know you find you find something that self-belief is always there so you know you find something just to keep going. Well just as well you did keep going because you did find something in yourself the following year winning the Weetabix Women's British Open at Woburn on the Dukes course. In doing so you became just the second Australian winner after Corinne Dibner won at Lindrick in 1988. Where does winning the Women's British Open rate in your career highlights? Oh, it's right up there, obviously. Um, Even though it wasn't a major at that time, it was still um, the tournament to win uh, in Europe and it was the most prize money. It was the most prestigious. It was, you know, live all four days on television. It was was just one of those events that you knew – uh, if you felt if I could win this, then it really means something. So you know, all all of the top Europeans would come back from the, the US and play. Um, the year that I played, Patty Sheehan and um, Brandy Burton, who are two of the best players in the world, they played. So it was getting to the point where a lot of the the Americans knew that this was an event they wanted on their CV as well. So yeah, no, just very grateful to have won it, and, and obviously it was a very special week. Mm. You also topped the Order of Merit that year. That was the same year that Annika Sorenstam was Rookie of the Year and Laura Davies had the lowest scoring average. 
So the name Karen Lunn was deservedly in stellar company. Women's golf in Europe, as you just said, was pretty strong then, wasn't it? Oh, it was, absolutely. There was, um, you know, obviously Laura was one of the best players in the world. Uh, Lotta Neumann, Helen Alfredson, uh, Trish Johnson, uh, Marie-Laure de Lorenzi, who was a fantastic French player. You know, if you wanted to win back then, you had to beat some great players. And it was, it was the start of a real, um, you know, you had so many of the young Swedes coming through. And obviously Annika, um, she played events as an amateur. We all knew how good she was going to be. But, uh, yeah, she just took the world by storm. And, yeah, no, it was absolutely, it was very, very competitive back then. The, the depth probably wasn't there. But to beat those sort of top 10 players, they were, you know, some of the best golfers that I've ever had the, the privilege of playing with. Um, so, yeah, very, very grateful to have managed to, to have my name come up on the top of the leaderboard with all those names there. Do you think that the resilience of playing competitive golf against some of those strong names helped prepare you for what's needed in your later governance and administrative career? I think so. I think to have played for as long as I did, you know, obviously you have a lot of up and downs in your career and, you know, the great times are great and the lows are pretty low. Um, So I think that to have that resilience, and I think that's probably one of the things I'm most proud about um, in my career that I won my first event in 1986 and I won my last event in 2012, you know, so that's a long time between drinks, if you like. So I think so. I think that you you just have to find a way to get it done, you know, And, and I was never a quitter at whatever I did and I was always very determined. So yeah, I think it probably was. I think it was a, stood me in really good stead. You joined the Players' Council of the LAT in the mid-1990s and then became chair of that council. You then served on the LAT Board of Directors between 1999 and 2013, serving as chairman of the board from 2003 to 2013. When and what sparked your interest in governance and administration of women's golf? I think I was always a bit of a nerd, to be honest with you. When I decided to turn pro, I had a job in the public service in Sydney and I was studying law part-time. So I knew that golf wouldn't be the be-all and the end-all for me. And once I sort of really got my teeth into it and started looking at the, like you said, the governance and what went on behind the scenes, it really interested me. I was never one of those players who just turned up and wanted to get my check. I was always really interested in, well, how does all this happen? And a golf tournament just doesn't come together in one day. So I was interested in that and obviously joined the Players' Council because I felt that at that time I had experience on playing a few of the tours and had something to offer and then was voted the chair of that and then took up a seat on the board. And, and as you said, the rest is kind of history. But I think it was good for me to have that sort of an outlet. When you're playing golf for a living, it's just all about you and it's all about your golf. But it was actually really good for me to have something else to focus on because you do have a lot of downtime. As a player back then, we didn't have the internet and we didn't have um, Netflix. And, you know, basically your downtime was reading a book because there was very few English television stations when you were playing in Europe. So um, you had a lot of downtime and always, always interested in learning. I just wanted to keep learning as much as I could about as many topics as I could when I was playing. So it, it definitely, all of that stood me in good stead to, to sort of where I sit today. I particularly enjoyed this quote from you upon the announcement of your appointment. I've played on all the world's tours and at times I was one of the best players and at other times I've been one of the worst. Therefore, I feel I can represent the players from every perspective. There's some good self-deprecating Aussie humour in that statement, Karen. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I absolutely to this day believe that. You know, on my day, I, I believed that I could beat anyone and I, I managed to do that on a few occasions. But, you know, it, the nature of the game is that when you play for as long as I did, you're going to have some pretty low low points. And I did. I mean, I, you know, when I was playing badly, I was really struggling. And 
yeah, I, I was at the bottom of the leaderboard many, many times and that wasn't a fun place to be. So I think that, you know, my experiences with the LET, you know, in those areas of governance that you mentioned, I wasn't just representing, you know, the top 5%, I was representing everyone. And I honestly believe that and I still believe that today. You know, I have as much respect for the players at the bottom of the leaderboard on any of our events than I do at the top because they've all made a massive effort to get there and everyone's got a story, you know. it's uh, mm. The top players have great stories but, but the girls down the bottom of the leaderboard too, they've often battled very, very hard to get to where they are. So I think I have a respect and an admiration for everyone that, that plays on any of the tours. It takes a lot to get there. Yes, I agree with you that everyone's got a story and often some of them are not as uh, well seen, are they? No, absolutely. What was your original mission when you were appointed chairman of the LET board and what do you feel was your most important accomplishment in your time there? I think at the time there was a fair bit of uncertainty amongst the membership about the direction that the tour was was taking and certainly some uncertainty about the financial sustainability of the tour moving forward. I was involved on the board at that time and I just felt that the tour needed some strong leadership at that point. The members were certainly not happy about a lot of things that were going on. So, yeah, I think for me it was just well, okay, somebody's got to take control here. The previous chair had resigned it wasn't a great time. It was a tough time for the tour, but we had some great people that were on the board at the time. Alex Armas, who is now the CEO, and this is her second stint. She was on the board at the time and she was a fantastic reference for me. She was younger than me, but certainly her knowledge of of business and golf and her, her expertise and being able to find a solution when one didn't always seem obvious was a great gift. And yeah, I had some great people on the board to work with that were very supportive as well. So I think just getting the tour back to a position where it was respected, obviously at that point, the schedule had been negatively affected by a number of factors. And yeah, I think probably the accomplishment that I'm probably most proud of, and certainly not all down to me, was after the GFC hit was to actually get the 2011 Solheim Cup played because obviously Ireland was affected incredibly badly by the GFC and it took a lot of work from a lot of people to actually get that 2011 Solheim Cup played in Ireland. So I think that's probably one of the things I'm the most proud of. But uh, to see the LET where it is today, obviously the joint venture with the LPGA has been a great thing for the LET. As soon as that was on the table a few years before it actually happened, I was a strong advocate for that. Then just as a member, not not as anything more, when I was in this role, I'm, I'm still a member of the LET to this day. But I think it's been great for the LET and to see it where it is now and see the girls making the money they're making and the opportunities they have, it's, uh, it's wonderful. Yes, it looks very positive, doesn't it, now? Absolutely. Somewhere in all of this, you also fitted in some broadcast commentary for the LET. How did you enjoy that side of things? Yeah, I did enjoy it. And again, it came about really by chance. It was one of the the women that was supposed to be doing the co-commentary got sick and couldn't do it. So the producer at the time said, oh, look, you know, we need someone to do this post-event commentary in London Monday and knew that I was living just west of London. So it wasn't a big trip for me and said, would you be interested? And I said, yeah, so I'll give it a go. Somebody's got to do it. So I like talking. So (laughs) I'd played in the event. I knew the players. So yeah, I gave it a bit of a go and they sort of felt I did a, a decent job and yeah, ended up doing quite a bit of commentary. Most of it was the post-event highlights production that I voiced, usually the Monday or Tuesday after the event. But some of the events I actually did uh, the nightly highlights too when I was playing in the event. So I'd play in the morning or the afternoon and 
and then come back in the evening and voice the night highlights. And that was great. It was a good experience and it gives me great admiration for all of the women out there that do such a great job. And obviously we've got some of our members, Jane Crafter, who's had a great career doing that and, and now Ali Whitaker, who's gone on and she's probably one of the most sought after broadcasters in the game. So my admiration for them having done a little bit of it is definitely more so. But uh, yeah, no, it was just an interesting thing to do. It gave me a little bit more diversity in my thinking about how people look at golf tournaments and how people watch and consume golf. So, yeah, I think that, again, I love learning. So anytime I get an opportunity to do something different, I'm I'm always on board. You returned home to Australia in 2013 to take up the position of Chief Executive Officer of the then ALPG. What were your initial priorities when you first took up the role? Was it mainly managing the ALPG day-to-day or did you already have some strategic ideas bubbling away? Um, I think I think a little bit of both. Um, obviously, when Warren uh, decided to move on, it was a bit of a shock to, to a lot of people and um, I saw that the role had uh, come available. So it was a time when my mum was battling with her health and um, funnily enough, I was actually playing some some good golf. It wasn't a, you know, a time that I was actually thinking of retiring, but this role came up and I knew that mum would need more and more care. So I just thought, oh, well, I'm not going to apply for this job. A couple of my friends talked me into it. And um, yeah, and fortunately enough, I got it. So basically within a month, I was on a plane home and just sort of snuck away without anybody noticing really and and took on this role. Certainly the opportunities within Asia, which are still there. We've made some inroads into, you know, some events in Asia. We've had co-sanctioned events in Thailand. We've had co-sanctioned events with the China LPGA. Obviously, the last three years since COVID, it's been a bit of a nightmare with, you know, nobody's been able to travel, but we're doing a lot of work behind the scenes with with some of the smaller tours. You would have noticed that during the Australian Open, we had a very international field, uh, Indian players, players from Taiwan, from Thailand. So we're doing a lot of work behind the scenes with those other smaller tours, similar to us, that are looking for player pathways and opportunities for their players. So we've got an event in, in Taiwan that we've got a couple of our members playing. So I just think those opportunities and pathways for our members and their members, we've definitely got a lot of opportunities within Asia. So yeah, obviously with a small team, you, we don't have the resources or the time and in some cases the expertise to actually do what you want to do. As much as I've loved this role, it's been very, very frustrating that with the resources we have, you can only do so much. So um, I think that's why I guess more than anyone, I'm excited about the golf strategy and what we're working uh, on the PGA of Australia and Golf Australia with and what that can mean for the WPGA Tour moving forward and our members, I think we'll have a a lot more opportunities down the track. In March 2019, the PGA of Australia and ALPG announced a collaborative agreement by which the two bodies would work more closely together and that relationship has grown even closer since. Can you fill us in on some of the major developments that have occurred as a result of that alliance? I think probably commercially the benefits that have come with that ramping up of the work we've done together prior to 2019. We've got WebEx as our collaboration technology partner across the PGA and the WPGA. We've got Adidas as our apparel partner across both organisations and Coca-Cola European division, again, across the professional tours. And obviously most recently BMW, which is a whole of golf agreement across Golf Australia, the PGA and ourselves. So I think from a commercial point of view, having those tour sponsors is something that we've always lacked. Again, you know, we haven't had the resources to be out there 
knocking down the doors of the big corporates. So I think that they've been fantastic. And obviously, the tour has made some money from sponsorship, uh, which was lacking before. So they're just some small outcomes of what we've achieved. But uh, I think the WebEx Players Series, which has been fantastic and obviously great for our younger players as well through our involvement with Golf Australia. So there's a number of things. And yeah, we're working on some more stuff now. And it's kind of a watch this space within the next few weeks. We'll be making some more announcements. And I think another example across all of our events this year the public affairs and marketing team for Golf Australia and the PGA has been doing most of our media and social media, which has taken a whole a lot off my shoulders during our events early in the year. So just working together on efficiencies within all three of our organisations to try and to make sure we're representing the game of golf in the best way we can and not wasting resources and, and certainly putting them into the areas that are most needed. Well, that uh, close relationship is also reflected in the rebranding in November 2020, in which ALPG became the WPGA Tour of Australasia, linking in with the PGA Tour Australasia. And the two logos sit very neatly alongside each other, don't they? Yeah, they do. And obviously, there was a lot of intent there to do that. I think from my point of view and our board's point of view, the ALPG was kind of like uh, people didn't know whether we were a golf tour or, or a political faction. It was just like nobody really knew what it meant and it, nothing ever really flowed. And if you look at the world of professional golf, whether it's LPGA or Ladies European Tour, they're all aligned with the other professional tours. And, and certainly the PGA acronym is very solid in most of the women's tours. But we just felt that to, you, to have the opportunity to work with the PGA, to have that PGA acronym within our name. So people actually knew, okay, well, we're the women's PGA Tour of Australasia, so they can actually relate to what we do. So there's the men's PGA Tour of Australasia, which is the PGA Tour of Australasia, but now we have the women's arm of that. So they, they sit, as you said, very neatly beside each other, you know, and, and basically looking at those two logos together, that represents professional golf in Australasia um, in our territory. So I think that it's a lot neater. People have a much better understanding of what we do now and what we're about. So I think that was really important in around that messaging. Just prior to that uh, joint rebranding, James Sutherland was appointed Chief Executive Officer of Golf Australia. What have been and are for the future the major benefits of the three bodies now working together, for example, developing the Australian Golf Strategy? Yeah, I think James coming in, I think the timing that that he came in was perfect for us. We were at a time where Gavin and myself and the, and the PGA and the WPGA boards were working very closely together. James came in and he showed a willingness to work with all of us and understand, I guess, the politics and the way things had been done before and what we could do to improve that. And and one of his big ideas, you know, within the first year of coming in was, well, we need a national strategy for our game. You know, we all need to have our own, I guess, underpinning strategies that, that aligns to the national strategy, but we need a strategy for our game and we all need to work together. So I think coming from cricket where it is one body, truly, and everything comes under the umbrella of Cricket Australia, James saw things very very differently and his willingness to work with us and and if I can say not just a willingness to work with us but to respect us as a women's organization was a breath of fresh air so I think from my side uh, James coming in and wanting to work with us and wanting to help us you know say okay well we're representing golf what, what can we do to help you um, it was really refreshing and, and that attitude obviously with, with Gavin and his team at the PGA as well it's been a long time coming but it's no doubt it's going to be great for the game so I think I feel very positive about you know working together with Golf Australia and the PGA and not only those organizations you know within the Australian Golf Industry Council, the the Golf Managers Association, the Architects of Sporting Goods, the uh, 
superintendent. So, you know, we all have a role, a really important role in the game and, and we need to work together to make sure that we get all our ducks in a row. Karen, speaking of the Australian Golf Industry Council, you were in October this year appointed to the chair of that council, the first woman to lead it since its inception in 2006. This speaks to growing support for women throughout the golf industry, doesn't it? Where do you see the AGIC heading on your watch? Yeah, well, I think it's been heading in a really good direction. Gavin Kurtman's done a great job in chairing the past four years, and I think that he felt it was time for someone else to take over. But I think that now, and again, all tied with the strategy and everyone working together, I think it is an important body, and all of the bodies within the Australian Golf Industry Council have a really critical role. So I think that we just need to work together. Obviously, I think the nature report that the AGIC commissioned probably four years ago now really formed a lot of the work done behind the scenes with the national golf strategy. So I think that we need to use our influence as a group within golf. We need to get governments to understand what we're all doing for the game. It all comes back to you know our philosophy and our positioning, particularly in terms of government, is crucial moving forward. We know the battles that a lot of golf courses have now. Um, I was at Moore Park yesterday for one of our Women's Golf Network days, and obviously the battles that Moore Park has had have been well documented, and obviously with North North in Melbourne, Albert Park in Brisbane. You know, as an industry, we need to tell our story better and, and get our ducks in a row so we have the right channels to communicate to the decision makers so they can actually understand what we're trying to do as a sport and as an industry. One of the representatives on the AGIC is Public Golf Facilities Australia. What possibilities does public golf have in encouraging beginners, especially women, do you think? Oh, it's a massive part. And I think that the the nature research that was done showed us all of that, that most women are not comfortable starting their golf journey at a private golf club. Most of them want to just go out and have a hit. They want to have fun. They want to be with their friends. And I think that, you know, that that's the first touch point probably for, I think, at 60, maybe even more percent of women that, that actually want to give golf a go. And certainly the, we know that there's another, what, two million out there that are predisposed to having a go at golf. So, the reality is that the public facilities are going to be the first touch point for most people when they try golf. Very few of them are just going to go into a private club and start hitting. So the public facilities play a huge part. Obviously, you look at facilities like Wembley Golf Club in Western Australia. You know they've just got everything there, and they're just they're kicking goals. They've got so many juniors and women, and you know they do have competitions there, but they've got so much other stuff going on. So it's absolutely critical that we recognise these facilities as an important part of the golfing landscape in Australia, which they haven't really been done before. So, yeah, massively critical part of, of our sport moving forward. An extraordinary number of people start their journey in golf at a public facility, don't they? For some, they move on to private club membership, but for others, the public courses remain their destination. So it's a very important part of the pathway, isn't it? Oh, for sure. And and a lot of people don't necessarily want to be members of a golf club. They might not want to play golf. One of my colleagues at the PGA of Australia, Lou Marr, I was with her at Moore Park yesterday and just chatting to Lou about her golfing journey. And she said, you know, I've probably played 20 rounds of golf, but I just want to go and hit on the range and have a bit of a laugh, you know. And, and for a lot of women that are working or have families, they don't have the time to go out and play 18 holes and, you know, get a handicap and all that. They just, they just want to go out and have fun. So it's it's a massively critical part and it's something that we've never really recognised within the industry as playing its part. It was always like, well, hopefully all these people will go on and play golf at clubs, but why do we need them to do that? They're at the driving range, they're at mini golf, they're at a simulator. If they're hitting balls and, you know, giving golf a go, they're a golfer and and we recognise that now and that hasn't always been the case. 
What is the place of professional golf in the ecosystem of golf as you see it? I've always thought that professional events are just a sideshow, really. We need to use those events to better engage with fans, new fans, new formats of the game. So I I think they obviously have an important part in, you know, the established golfer loves to watch professional tournaments. There's no doubt they'll sit there for five hours. A lot of them will watch the whole round or come to the golf. But to get new people and new fans into golf, you know, we need to try different formats. And that's what we've done with events like the Player Series with the Athena And, you know, I know the PGA of Australia, they announced that they'll be involved in a new series within the men's game at the end of next year. So I think that the traditional 72-hole events will always have their place, but the newer formats of the game, you know, we need to keep innovating and uh, bringing new fans to the game because people these days consume sport very differently to how they did 10, 15, 20 years ago. So we need to get much more engaged with the the Gen Y, Zs and all the other ones. I'm not even sure what the new ones are called, but we need to get much more engaged with them. And obviously the digital and fan experiences at events has obviously become such an important part. Again, you went to a golf tournament years ago and you just watched the golf. Now it's, it's so much more about the experience. So we need to use the professional events, I guess back to your question, is a way to engage with new fans and new audiences to bring them to the game. The Players Series Rosebud has Jeff Ogilvie as its host. He's also co-hosts the Sandbelt Invitational with Mike Clayton. Earlier this year, Jan Stevenson co-hosted the TPS Hunter Valley with Peter O'Malley and Kari Webb's name now adorns the trophy for the Women's PGA. So those are examples of big-name tour players having an effect on grassroots participation, isn't it? And giving back to the game, actually. Yep, absolutely. And I think we're in Australia, we're so fortunate to have, you know, obviously what Curry's done to give back here in Australia has been well documented with her Curry Web Series and all the stuff she does for our up-and-coming players, you know, the Minjis and Hannahs and Suos and obviously there's the technical stuff but I think the behind the scenes stuff that Curry does you know in, in always keeping in contact with the girls and providing them with advice when they need it is amazing and obviously Curry being involved in what was Vision 2025 now Golf Australia's Women and Girls Engagement Strategy you know she's, she's just been amazing what she's given back and uh, her advice is always so valued and her voice obviously is louder than many others and and then certainly there were times going back five six seven years where Kari spoke out in support of the WPGA then the ALPG when perhaps we weren't being treated uh, as we should or respected as we should within the industry and you know Kari speaking out certainly gains more traction than most so I think Kari supported us unbelievably the past sort of 10 years and will continue to do so with the support from the young players but certainly Jan as you know she came down for our 50th anniversary celebrations and was around at the golf at Victoria and Kingston Heath the ISPS Hander Australian Open all week behind the scenes promoting the game and as you said we're so fortunate to have you know Ian Baker Finch and Roger Davis that sit on the, the board of the PGA and Jeff Ogilvie that puts so much back into junior sport and Robert Allenby as well with the stuff he does for Challenge and Kari and Jan and people like that so I think in Australia we're very fortunate that um, it's not all take, take, take. You know, they could all go off and retire quietly. I know that, but they're very, very keen to give back. And like I said, in Australia, we're very, very fortunate to have names like that behind everything that we're doing. There's a lot swirling around in professional golf at the moment. What are the primary issues as you see it for women's professional golf, not just in Australia, but around the world? Um, I think women's golf, uh, women's professional golf is in a really good place. I think that the LPGA Tour, um, Mike Wan is um, 
he was instrumental in taking the LPGA to the, the next level um, and the way that um, I guess they've defined their superstars, their young players. Um, obviously, you had at the time a, a great Korean presence, um, but now you've got the quarter sisters and obviously Lexi Thompson's always been there and some fantastic players from all over the world. And if you look at the leaderboard on an LPGA event any any given week, you know, it's so international. It's representative of, you know, pretty much every country that, that plays golf on the globe. So I think women's golf is in a good place. The the alliance between the LPGA and the LET has been a, a real positive. Um, and obviously we're working, you know, as closely as we can with those other tours and the smaller tours. So I think that women's professional golf is, is in a really good place. I think that obviously there's some issues um, going on in the men's game and, and I don't know where they're going to land. Um, um, but it's certainly been interesting sitting on the outside watching all of that. But, um, yeah, I think women's professional golf is in a really good place. Next year we've got the the International Crown, um, International Teams event back on the schedule after COVID, and, and obviously Australia will have a presence in that. And um, Yeah, it's just going to be great to watch our, our young stars. Obviously, Sue O's just got her card back on the LPGA, which she had a rough last six months, but Karis Davidson watching her on the LPGA next year. Uh, along with Steph and Hannah and Minji, um, you know, and then hopefully some of our other other players coming back to the LPGA. So, yeah, it's it's in a really good place, and I think that, um, yeah, I think I think the it's only going to be onwards and upwards for the women's professional game. It'll be good to watch Grace Kim as well, won't it? She had quite quite the year, and then uh, when you expected her to perhaps be mentally tired at the end of the year, she went so close to taking out the Women's Australian Open. She's obviously an unbelievable talent. We've watched her progress from, you know, a very young age and go through the ranks. And like I said, to do what she did, you know, the year before as well, she went out onto the smaller tours and the mini tours and just played. Uh, she was away from home during COVID for six, eight months. It was really tough for her. And, you know, the rewards certainly weren't there at the end of that, but she put herself out there. She got a card to play on the on the Epson tour this year and qualified. And, and I've no doubt that she's going to go on and have a wonderful career. You know, I think that what impressed me the most, obviously she had a good finish at the Australian Open, but she walked off the course after, you know, finishing poorly and, you wouldn't have known. Like she came into the scoring tent and she was just so positive and, no, I'm not going to let a bad finish ruin my event. And I was like, well, you know, if you've got your head screwed on at, at a young age like that, then combine that with the, the talent that you've got, then you're going to go a long way. So, yeah, we've got some really good players. I think we've just – Steph Kuriak is just finding a feed on the LPGA Karras as well. I mean, they're all great players. And, and I think for having them, you know, out there with Hannah and Minji, who are obviously role models to them, and I think Hannah's just been fantastic as well as sort of following Curry's footsteps and saying, okay, well, I'm getting a little bit as the senior elder statement out here. I've got to, you know, stand up and help these young players as Curry did to us. So I know Hannah's been very helpful as well with, with the younger players. I think one of the reasons the Athena has proved to be such a popular event is the opportunity to see some of these emerging players, isn't it? And then you can follow them from an early stage right through to whatever they become. Yeah, I think that was a really important part to us in uh, putting the Athena together the first year and obviously last year, uh, sorry, earlier this year was the second edition. Next year we'll have the third edition was to get the Australian public to get to know these young players. Um, obviously, you know, we, we, we've Steph played the first year in the Athena. Uh, Kirsten Rudgley won um, one earlier this year, just beating Grace. So you've got the Australian public got to see a glimpse of those young players and now when they're on the, the various tours, um, you know, can follow them. And we have some great young talent out there. You know, Kelsey Bennett, 
um, as well. Just got through to final stage of LETQ school with Kirsten Rudgley, um, along with Steph Hall and Amy Welsh had a fantastic final round to get herself through there. Um, Honey Song as well. So we've got some great young talent from from all over Australia and New Zealand out there on the world stages. And we just need more and more players to be coming through and, and contending. And it's just going to, you know, the more, more stars we have, the more it's going to help at the grassroots level. Karen, there was a lot of talk around the President's Cup in September about changing it to a mixed format. Some of that talk included ceasing the Solheim Cup. What are your thoughts on that? I think the Solheim Cup is here to stay. I mean, I, I was involved very heavily from the beginning and it's created such a, an amazing competition. It's probably, apart from the Women's World Cup, um, a soccer probably the biggest women's sport event in the world. And those rivalries have been created now. It's created that tribalism between the European fans and the American fans and the European players and the American players. And I think the Solheim Cup is definitely here to stay. I know there was a lot of chat around the President's Cup, whether that should become a mixed event. And, you know, I think that's probably got merit. We don't have a major international team event apart from the International Crown. So it would be great to have an international mixed event. Obviously, scheduling would be the hardest thing. As we all know, that's a difficult one. But yeah, there's been a lot of talk about it. I know that the Aussie guys that played on the President's Cup feel that they're not a million miles away from having a competitive team, but obviously it has been very one-sided. So yeah, I think it's a watch this space. You know, I know our players in particular love playing for their country and they don't get many opportunities. So uh, yeah, but I think the Solheim Cup is here to stay. I can't see anybody tinkering with that. It's, it's, it's been very successful. There's also been a bit of discussion since mixed format events started in relation to course setup and its impact on scoring. In March 2021, Beth Ann Nichols wrote a thought-provoking piece in the US publication Golf Week called Let Them Score, How Misguided Course Setups Are Holding Back Women's Golf. The premise was that if women had the same or similar club in their hands approaching the green as men do, scores would be similar. And in May this year, when Minji Lee won the Cognizant Founders Cup, contributing to her reaching number two in world rankings, Steve Eubanks wrote a piece for LPGA News comparing her scoring and proximity to the hole against that of then world number one Scotty Scheffler. In shots 100 to 125, 125 to 150, and 150 to 175 from the hole, Minji outgunned Scheffler every time for accuracy, this supporting Beth Ann's premise. That premise, however, has created a lot of conjecture, mostly from men dismissing it. Can you please share your thoughts on how course setup affects results in mixed formats and the impression created of women's golf compared to men when it's not equitable? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've very much agree with with what Beth Ann was saying in that article and, and having played on the LPGA and, um, and the LET for such a long time as well, I always felt that we never were given the opportunity to shine as the men do. And I, if you just look at that data behind Menji's numbers earlier this year, I mean, that just tells the story, doesn't it? But I think that... <laughs> There's so many different ways you can look at this. And, and, and in setting the courses up for the Australian Open, we had a lot of debate about whether the courses should be set up for, you know, to try and get the scores similar. And I think we did a pretty good job of that in the end or or whether, okay, if the men shoot 20 under, they shoot 20 under and if the girls shoot five under. But we all know that the women with any club in their hand are as good as the men. And I think that 
if you look at Lydia Ko with with one of her rescue clubs, I'd back her any time against any of the guys to, you know, and I think, like I said, that data with Minji has, has certainly told the story. But for me, it's really important because if you've got a fan of men's golf that is going to the Australian Open and they're seeing 25 under, for instance, win, they're not going to think, oh, the courses are much shorter for the guys. They're hitting shorter clubs in. Oh, that's why the scores are different. They're going to think, oh, the men are better than the women. And that's the widely held theory on men's and women's golf. So for me, it's really important in any event that the women are given the same opportunity to score as the men are. It's been tough. We've worked really closely, obviously, you know, this with Graham Scott and, and Nick Dasty from the PGA, not just based on our opinions, but based on as much data as we can get our hands on from all of the other tours that are doing events like this and the data the LPGA have got and the PGA have got about how far their players are hitting certain clubs. It's, re- it's really important, particularly in those mixed gender events that are playing for one trophy. You have to try and give everyone the same opportunity to score. And it is, it is difficult. Not every golf course is set up to make that easy. And often the forward tees, I won't say the women's tees, but the white tees or, or any other forward tees are, are quite often an afterthought. You know, with setting the course up for the male professionals, you just go back as far as you can. But for the women pros, it's much more difficult because the holes aren't designed to be played necessarily from where the women's or the white tees are. So, yeah, it's been a bit of a battle and um, Scotty and I have done a lot of work on it. and We've had a lot of conversations and I think we're in a good place. And I think the, if you looked at the two leaderboards at the Australian Open last week, our goal was at the top end to try and give the leading men and the leading women the opportunity to shine. And I think that they did that. And I think that apart from the guy that won, Adrian Moron, you know, eagling that last, the scores were very similar across the board in the top 10. So, but it is a hard job, but certainly it's great to see that uh, people writing about, you know, something like Minji, you know, basically give her any club in her bag and she's as good in terms of proximity to the whole of the guys. And, and quite often at the Players Series events and other mixed gender events we've done, the guys have said, even in practice rounds, oh my God, the girls are so good with those rescue clubs. I'd never hit a rescue club that close as consistently as they do. So I think it's been an eye-opener too for the men professionals, many of them that haven't seen many women pros play a lot of golf to actually see the standard at which the girls play at. These players are the best in the world for that reason and and they're amazing golfers. So they need to have that opportunity and and I absolutely agree with Bethan's article when I played it on the LPGA. There were very few par fives that you could reach into, whereas the guys are reaching them with irons most of the time and it was just like, well, you're comparing the scores and you're not really comparing apples to apples at all. So, yeah, it's, it's certainly an interesting argument and you could, we could talk about it for hours and people have got different opinions. But, yeah, we've done a lot of work, so I think we're in a good place there. Now, speaking of the concurrent Australian Opens, what are your thoughts around the first iteration? What are the highlights and homework as you see it? Yeah, I think uh, we, we had one debrief last week already. We're keen to make sure everybody loves the event and I think that the public love the event. They showed with their feet, they turned up to watch and I think for me the diversity in the crowd, there were so many women and families and older people, younger people, that was the thing that really stood out to me. Um, obviously there's some, you know, every time you're doing an event of this magnitude and effectively combining three events that we did, there's going to be learnings to take away. But I think, you know, in general, I think very positively Golf Australia and, and all of the teams involved did a great job. I think that it was a big undertaking, but I think in terms of raising our national championships to another level, it did that. So I'm very positive. Like I said, there's definitely some learnings to take forward and there's no doubt there will be some changes and some tweaks moving forward. But I think for the first year it's been done, I think that it was absolutely fantastic. Australian Open Week also included celebration of the 50th anniversary of WPGA, 
which started out as LPGAA, Ladies Professional Golf Association of Australia, in 1972 before becoming ALPG and now WPGA. How cool was it to see a room full of founders, early players and current players and people who have in some way supported women's professional golf over the journey? Yeah, it was absolutely fantastic. And to have seven of our 11 founders there was just amazing. And Marilyn Smith had made the effort to fly all the way from the States. And yeah, it was a big job. It took a lot of planning, but it was worth every second of it to see those seven founders up on the stage. And also there were many of our other members who have played a number of events, Reese Wright and Gillian Smith, who were very involved from early days, and Penny Graber and a lot of tour players made the effort, Ann Wilson, our longest ever serving past president. So it was great. It really was. And I think it was a wonderful celebration to have the people that were in the room there, representatives of Gov Australia and PGA boards and our sponsors and partners, and to have Ian Baker Finch, a major winner in the room. I think the girls were really stoked. And obviously to have Kari there, I mean, that was she was fantastic. And Kari presenting Minji and Hannah, their honorary lifetime membership of the WPGA Tour was quite special as well. So yeah, it was a great celebration of women's golf and the feedback we've had from so many people that attended, they just absolutely loved it. So for us, it was really important. We hadn't recognised the founders as they should be recognised. And as you know, the 50-year celebration is a really big deal and certainly appreciate your help with getting Margie Masters' family involved and having her honoured as, as an honorary lifetime member as well. I know that meant a lot to Margie's family and very rightly, she sits up there now as, as a life member, as she probably should have many years ago. But yeah, I'm sure she'd be stoked as well. That was a lovely moment of the evening, I think, as was listening to Alan Gillett, who was really the father of the LPGAA, speak as part of the panel sessions. Yeah, it was great to have Alan there. We didn't think initially that he'd be able to make the trip down, but his wife, Barb, and Lorreen Ford, I think, campaigned very hard for him to be there. And I'm so glad that he managed to be there. I think that he spoke very emotionally about those early days and the battles that he fought. Certainly, I know I've had those discussions with him, but he went out on a limb. You know, he had a young family. He went off to the States for six weeks. He watched the LPGA. He engaged with players and he said, I'm going to do it. And he did it. And uh, as you said, the next year, 1973, there was 11 of these women that decided to give it a go. And that's where it all started. And I think that there's many of us that have made a career out of playing this great game for a living that that owe Alan and, and the founders a lot. And it was so great to have so much diversity in the room in terms of our members of having uh, Hannah and Minji there for them to see the founders and to witness what they battled and, and Alan's battles. Um, I think it's great, absolutely fantastic. And, yeah, it was just a, a fantastic occasion. Yeah, great celebration of women's golf. In your life in golf, you've been a beginner, an emerging player, a successful tour player with 16 wins to your name, a broadcast commentator, and now an experienced and savvy administrator, both at tour and national organisation level. So it's fair to say you've developed a feel for all these sectors of the game, I think. How has that informed you for the future of the game as you see it? Yeah, thanks, Karen. Yeah, I think that it's the game moving forward is golf has changed. We know that. We know that people are time poor. You know, nobody can go off to a golf course for seven or eight hours on a Saturday that, you know, my dad and his mates used to every, every Saturday. The world has changed and we have to embrace that. And we have to recognise that golf is a different game now. People want different things from golf. They consume sport differently. They want to consume golf differently. So we just have to make sure as a sport we provide them with all of the options that they're looking for, whether that be different types of memberships or different types of formats of the game. 
we have to really embrace that because if we don't, we're going to get left behind. So I think that that's really important to me. Engaging with juniors, providing the pathways um, for young women is obviously, you know, crucial to, to developing not just the next lot of professional golfers, but to develop women that have a passion for golf, you know, that may go on and work in a golf club or, or be a golf coach or be a golf superintendent. Um, so I think that we just need to make sure that all of those pathways are there and to give young women a chance to fall in love with the game. So I think golf's in a great place. I think that, you know, there's still more work to be done, but I think the strategy set our game here up in a really good place. We just have to keep moving with it now. Some of that change has involved challenging the institution, hasn't it? How's the journey as an administrator and a champion for women in golf been for you? Have there been moments when you've despaired or have you always had confidence that change could happen? Uh, no, I, I really didn't. It was like a sledgehammer over my head when I first came into this role because I couldn't believe the lack of unity within the game and all the different organisations and factions and everyone was just worried about their own piece of turf. There was no goodwill and there was no wanting to collaborate everyone had their own little patch and they were very protective of that. And it wasn't, well, this is our game. We have a responsibility to make this game better for all of us. So how can we be not working together? That was the thing for me that jumped out. I was like, I don't understand this. I really, it was really a a defining moment for me to, well, actually there's so many people in here with massive egos that are just worried about their own jobs. And I'm going to have a lot of fights on my hands. And I did. I had many, 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 many fights. And and often I was left despondent. And, well, you know, I'm really bashing my head up against a wall here. Nothing's going to change. But you you keep fighting the fights. And it's not just myself. It's, like I said, Kari was a great ally a lot of the time in those early days. And, and when we were certainly pushing for the Women in Golf strategy, the Vision 2025, she was an important part of that. And, and Shaney War, who was our president before Julia Boland, who's done such a wonderful job as well. But there's a lot of strong women that have been prepared to fight the fights. And Rachel Hetherington is another one of those. Rachel was on our board for a time and not afraid to say what needed to be said. And and there was a lot of pushback, a lot of pushback. And, you know, there's some amazing women within golf. Jill Spargo, for instance, Jill was one of the ones that really advocated for Vision 2025. And she said, okay, well, I'm going to do this. I'm not just going to say we need it. I'm going to put myself out there. And and the time and effort and energy that Jill put into to getting that off the ground was fantastic. So there's been a lot of effort from a lot of strong women, not just myself, but, you know, you need to find allies. And I think that I, I worked that out very quickly that I wasn't going to win this battle on my own. I needed to find some some allies. And, and a lot of those were, were men too, not just women. So, yeah, very disconcerting at times, very downhearted at times. But to see where we've come to now, the point we are now working with Gavin and his team and, and James and his team, you know, where we are now, it, it's, it's, it's a mile away from where we were five years ago. So I'm very, very grateful for that. So, it's, uh, yeah, I, there's still work to be done. There's no doubt about that. But the willingness and, and the understanding that, you know, none of us are bigger than the game. You know, we have a responsibility to grow the game and none of us are bigger than that. And I think that's really important for everyone to remember. Do you think that with some of the changes in the last nine years, especially in the last four since Vision 2025 launched, that we're now starting to see what might be called compound change, i.e. change building on change and then creating greater momentum? Oh, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. And and like I said, it's just change breeds change and, and changing culture 
is the hardest thing. Culture does not change overnight and you have to just keep chipping away. But absolutely, you know, the changes that have been made, you know, now we have Vision 2025 has evolved into the women and girls engagement strategy within the national strategy. And obviously now there's been many more resources thrown at that. So it is absolutely, like I said, my hat's off to James and his team for actually recognising that nowhere near enough work's being done in this space, but we're not going to talk the talk, we're going to walk the walk and and certainly Gavin, his team at the PGA as well, what they're doing with the PGA Learning Hub, for instance, getting more women and girls to become teaching pros. So it's definitely a collaborative approach and I can't not mention the Junior Girls Scholarship that that Bonnie Bozeman has worked so hard on on putting in place. That's going to be a game changer for women's golf as well. So yeah, there's so many good things happening. I think you're right. I think it's just like change breeds change and it's just been little steps, little steps, little steps and we're making some bigger steps now, which is great. What is next on your to-do list, Karen? Uh, my to-do list. Um, we've still got a long way to go. I, I still want to, um, you know, we, we still want our members to have more opportunities to play better events, obviously increase the prize money. Obviously, the Australian Open was fantastic at having equal prize money across the, the men's and women's events. But yeah, raise the prize money just provide those pathways for our members to play in other tours and, you know, whether it be more opportunities in Asia. Um, Obviously, we have a small window when our players are home, January, February, March usually, and then they they go off and head off to the various tours. But if we can provide some opportunities for our other girls that are trying to make a living but but perhaps don't have anywhere else to play, so provide them with opportunities to play throughout the year. So, yeah, there's still a lot of work to do. But like I said, I've got a bit of help now, so that certainly makes it easier. Well, the 2022-23 playing season looks pretty healthy, doesn't it? Yeah, we've got a number of events. We've got a pretty full schedule from the middle of January right through to the end of end of March. Like I said, we'd like to see some of those prize money um, pools increase, but we're playing the richest ever women's pro-am in Melbourne, the Melbourne International at La Trobe Golf Club in January. And we've got a new event at Wagga Country Club, which is a $50,000 pro-am for the women, which is fantastic. A new event at Southport Golf Club, which they're going to match the, the purse of the men's pro-am as well. So we've got a lot of good things going on and, and a lot of golf clubs out there that are wanting to to do things for women, wanted to be seen to be not just talking the talk, but walk the walk in terms of, okay, well, if we have a a men's program, we're going to do a women's program. And I think that there's a lot of healthy discussions going on in clubs all over Australia. So like I said, we'd like to get the prize money up a little bit and we're going to have a lot of opportunities for our girls to play. After coming back from COVID, it's been a, a tough few years for our girls that try and earn a living from playing. So they'll have some good opportunities next year, which is great. Now, with all this going on, I'm thinking that it's probably been some time since you've actually hit a golf ball yourself. Is that right? Yeah, it is actually. Yeah, it's um, it's probably about six years since I had a club in my hand properly at a golf course. I did have a go at Top Golf about 18 months ago, but I was so bad. It's really put me off playing. So, but I, once I get a bit more time on my hands, I'd like to get back into just hitting a few balls here and there and, and see how I go. But yeah, it's just um, playing rubbish golf is not fun. I've done enough of that in my life. So, uh, but no, it, it's, it's still great. You get to Victoria Golf Club and kicks and Heath for the Australian Open. And then you're like, oh, wow, I'd love to go out and have a hit at this course. But, you know, I, I will, I will eventually, but who knows when that'll be. Karen, what would be your message for young aspiring professionals concerned about their future playing the game for money or life post-playing career? I would say two things. Consider an option. um, Consider it an option to go to the States on a scholarship because I think that's such a great pathway for young women who really want to make a living in the game. Go over there, get an education, get it paid for with a scholarship. The competition is fantastic. You're playing against the the players that will be the LPGA in 10 years' time. So I would say 
definitely consider that as a pathway. Or if not, um, make sure you're doing something when you're playing golf that prepares you for the you know the rest of your life. Because it, whether you're successful or not, you know, Minji and Hannah, I'm sure, could retire tomorrow if they wanted to, but they're in their twenties, so you know there will be a career after golf. So I would say to to try and keep that front and center in your mind, whether that be studying something when you're on the road, it's very easy to do that. And I think that certainly in terms of careers in the game for women, the, the opportunities are only going to keep improving. So, you know, even if you're a successful pro, you need something else in your life. So whether it be studying or, or just tr- trying to upskill yourself, any opportunity you have, I think that there's a long life after golf. So just make sure you, you think about that. Well, Karen, it's been fantastic to speak with you today. What you've contributed so far to governance of our sport, particularly at professional and tour level, is just extraordinary. And it's not over yet. So thank you for all you have done for Women in Golf and for sharing your story with us today. It's been fantastic to talk with you. Oh, thanks so much, Karen, for having me on. And, and thank you too for everything you do for the promotion of our women professionals and certainly our game here in Australia. We need people like yourself out there that are giving the airtime to professional golf. So thanks so much. Thanks, Karen. I hope you've enjoyed our conversation with Karen as much as I have. Karen is a champion of and for women in professional golf, and we've been privileged to have her unique insights today. What Karen has done for the WPGA and beyond has significance for the players of today as well as for the future. We will watch with interest as she continues making her indelible footprint on the game. If you've enjoyed this episode, Please let fellow golfers know we're here, either by word of mouth, sharing a link, or leaving a favourable rating or review. The more people who come to the show, the more visible we can make the stories of women in golf and of the men who support them. If you'd like to have new episodes delivered completely free of charge as soon as they're available, you can hit the subscribe or follow button next to the T for Two podcast on your phone or device podcast app. And if you have any questions or have someone in mind whose story you think might be interesting, please feel free to shoot me an email at hello at tfor2.com.au. Tifa 2 is produced on the traditional country of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation in Victoria and offers respect to their elders past, present and emerging. I'm really looking forward to catching up with you for our next Tea Time together. Our next guest is also someone whose story you will enjoy, so look out for that one. Until then, have fun in golf. Thanks for listening to Tea for Two. To check out other episodes and to keep up to date with what's happening in women's golf, please head over to tfor2.com.au.